Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this edition of Software People Stories, Sivaguru from PM Power Consulting is speaking to Badrinarayanan Mangadu, Vice President, HCL Technologies, on the interesting impact of culture and how software development is adapted. Examples range from Japan to Germany and also looking at the digital tsunami and how can individuals, leaders and companies prepare themselves. Listen on. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories, Badri. Uh, it's been a long time. We've been talking about it. Finally, it's great to have you on the show. As uh, we normally do, if we can start with uh, your self-introduction, we will take the conversation forward from there. Sure, Shiv. Uh, thanks a lot for giving this opportunity. And thank you, everyone, for uh, taking time and listening to this uh, podcast. Uh, I'm Badri Narayanan Mangadu. I've been in the IT industry for the last uh, 24 odd years. We both born in Chennai. Did my education in ITBHU Varanasi, then MBA in IIM Bangalore. Been in the IT industry with various uh, IT technology companies across India, US, and uh, various geography. And currently working uh, as head of delivery in HCL Technologies. Oh, wonderful. You've actually traveled in various places, both for education as well as your work. What do you see as uh, the attraction of IT? maybe in all these different locations. It's very intriguing. Cultural aspect of uh, how various geographies and culture interact both with IT as a, as a consumer as well as an enterprise is something which has always been very interesting for me. I was kind of jokingly telling one of my Japanese CIOs, right? So we were running a transformation program for two and a half years. This is for a very large airline, right? Maintenance program, so super mission critical. And I was telling that for the same program, for same specification, same requirements, if I had to execute it in US, it would probably cost one third and would have been executed in one fourth of the time, right? And that is how contrasting two different geographies or cultural aspects of the program come into the play. But in leaving out the individualities, I think what is important is finally any IT, right? Uh, whether it's being consumed by the end business or end customers, need to fit into a context of that geography and that culture. So there is no point and that program of in uh, Japan is something which actually brought that aspect to me that uh, there, is, it, there is no point you claiming that you can run a program or a project or uh, IT in a much uh, in certain way if it doesn't fit into the purpose of that particular geography and culture, right? And of course, you know, there are other cultures like in Australia, which is again, looking to adopt best practices. Europe has its own language mix. Each geography brings it its, its own unique culture and unique kind of constraints. And uh, the beauty of all of this is that obviously, you know, technology per se, while it could be language and culture independent, finally, how it brings the benefits uh, into an enterprise is where really that cultural aspect come together. And that's something which I think is very important for everybody to recognize. 
because otherwise uh, the benefits of the program would never be accruing to the end business. And that's something which I have kind of imbibed through various of programs uh, in my career. Yeah, that's uh, interesting because while you say technology is probably the same, it cannot be culture neutral. And with a lot of emphasis today on the user experience, it is also about the user needs or what the user wants to do. So how do you translate those expectations into something that your teams can understand and have an empathy for the customer and their success criteria? Yeah, and uh, so it's not just the user experience, right? I mean, that's obviously something which can straight hits on your face, but everything from even project management of it, how do you communicate the status? How would some of the functionality be uh, realized? How would uh, end users really interact with the system? And what are the surround systems and how they communicate with, you know, with system to system as well? So all of these aspects come together uh, and our UX and you know UI obviously being the most evident part of cultural aspect or the geography aspect, right? Uh, and the traditional thought process is that if you have to incorporate this uh, end user interaction, more on-site heavy, and that used to be the traditional thought process. But what I have painstakingly learned in my career is that important aspect we kind of miss out on is really how much of really a local talent right in each of the geography we use on critical roles is uh, is a very very important factor and mm-hmm. you know again most kind of it tend to give it as a tick in the box that i got x percent of local talent in each of my geography but what happens is if you haven't got, for example, business analysts like a traditional transformation program as a key role and having people of, of belonging to individual cultures and geography performing that role, you would actually not be able to understand the usage of system from a business context. right? So it is also the role mapping to cultural context, which is important. That's the first aspect. Second is uh, traditionally what we used to call as conference room pilots or, you know, business user experience or obviously the agile programming brings out uh, the user interaction in a very different concept. But, uh, you know, to simplify it, I would just put all of this into one box of saying how involved is business through the SDLC process, right? Whether it as a product owner or in the form of giving requirements embedded into the whole program any of these methodology, how involved are they and how much of buy-in is there and it has to be a two-way communication. Is you know, These are, I would say, are the top two critical success factors right in the context of geographically spread and geographically dispersed uh, environment to be successful. And uh, that's something which uh, may sound very intuitive. Most uh, programs actually miss out on incorporating these best practices. And suppose facto cost overruns, you have missed deadlines, programs not meeting the business of goals. And if you can fix this upfront, you would have a much more successful uh, enterprise IT in your hands. Yeah. Okay. A lot of questions. The first is when you talked about geographically dispersed or culturally dispersed and distributed teams with local talent. Uh, two questions there. One is what are probably some good practices or anti-patterns or something that you tried that worked or didn't work? In creating a more of an understanding team, more of the cultural empathy, at the same time, not letting that become more of a stereotypical reaction, saying that, oh, if it is a German uh, in the team, or if it is a Japanese, or if it is an Australian, or if it is 
even uh, from India to different regions, etc. Yeah, uh, so I, I will give two examples: one in Japanese market, and the other one is in the German market, right? And fairly stereotypical, as one would call it, from a cultural aspect. Both had fairly different kind of learning for me. Japanese one, like uh, the example that I was talking about. So traditional methodology is that okay, you put a requirements person uh, who will capture requirements, all documented. I kind of hand it over to engineers and you would have India-based project engineers, software engineers who will just churn out code, right, using those requirements. So so you had local people, talk, uh, customers in local language, capturing requirements in Japanese, getting translated by translator, translators, and, uh, you know, this is like a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, where bot sudden still come, and, uh, and then getting the translated uh, software specs being converted into code through you know india based engineers the workflow looks perfect op- most cost optimal you go in 6 months into the project you got all kinds of issues from how a single japanese word can have so many interpretations and therefore completely botched up software code in your hand to how what is the intention behind what a japanese business analyst would have documented certain thing right to how programmers don't look at the end to end concept and just look at each software specs as a individual requirement and just try to churn out code as a bot right literally mm-hmm. so all of this resulted in a completely mismatched end output and so uh, what again i did was not rocket science obviously uh, sense really good bilingual requirement analyst back to japan who would interact with customers and who really bridge the gap between what a japanese business analyst would understand and what he or she had documented in japanese and which got translated into the english specs right so so that gap is where maximum issues we sent people who had understanding of japanese and english knowledge and fix that gap so that is number one Similarly, I also, since business users per se couldn't come, the conference room pilot, as I was talking about, I got the business analyst of my team back at offshore to sit with bad programming, so to say, right? So, because these are the analysts who would come really do a code review or do a pre-systems test, so to say, and really certify the product, right? So basically, I was trying to reduce that gap through that full SDLC lifecycle, cross-involving people, which is another reason why it took more time than what would normally take for a program. And, and it's not just the language, right? And we typically tend to associate lots of things to language. But so everything from project management methodology to culture to how the interpretation of uh, yes or no in Japanese, right, as a very different consequence. So, so that was all uh, Japan. And very similar experience in German, though, not a language aspect of it, but the importance of accuracy and precision in documentation got assenuated in a very, very different way in one of the German-based projects that I did, which normally we wouldn't give so much of importance to. We cut functionality and the software delivered gets more importance than yeah. the associated documentation. But even the accuracy of associated documentation has as much a weightage as a software functionality. Right. So the importance of that and because uh, that is what is used prior to go live, you know, business uses the documentation to understand and accept the product as much as they review and test that. Uh, so, so that kind of differences came out in a much more stark way in certain geographies, which uh, if you don't incorporate into your methodology and into your program and project, uh, you are never going to have a successful program. And that was the learning from, you know, two of those examples. Very interesting. With uh, IT becoming more and more closely integrated into the core business, 
they say that every company is now an IT company or a software company. What do you see as a in terms of changing expectations from software engineers, engineering managers? Sure. Uh, several changes, I would say. So I would largely put them into two categories, right? So one is external facing or customer facing expectation changes. And second is internal facing from a skills and one. So let's first focus on the external one. So if you look at our whole Indian software industry, it has gone through change over the last couple of decades from Y2K times where we used to do a very small portion of the project to delivering small projects in the end part of the life cycle as to taking ownership of end-to-end projects to now handling end-to-end support of IT system. But I would say we are still, if you look at many of our programs, probably 90-95% of them, we are still not owning customers' IT, right? So, so if you look at functions like architecture, customers' IT strategy, for roadmap for either at a system level or at an overall enterprise level, all of these key functions are typically not just owned by customer, but even uh, the input or formation of many of these has a fairly less influence from traditional IOP. And you know, obviously it's changing, we are improving, there's no doubt about it, but in general, it's it's been a fairly less impactful on some of these areas. And then here comes the new tsunami, right, of digital wave, right? And still has multiple aspects, right? It's one is obviously business coming closer to IT. Most of the, you know, business are demanding IT to be actually owned by business where they are seeing automation to be part of them. They're seeing business productivity being driven by IT. Therefore, they wanting to own off all of this. Given that typically IOPs are not even owning traditional enterprise IT, here is a new situation where business, which is further away from IT, is kind of coming much, much closer, right? So, so you've got a new challenge now where in the traditional value chain, you've got to move up to now owning the full IT to now kind of being answerable to not, you know, not just owning IT, but making IT more valuable to business. So, mm. so those are two fundamental shifts that I'm seeing that we have to really make a quantum leap, right? And literally do a dual crossing, right? And, you know, it's not going to be overnight where you'll be able to do. I'm sure there are some business transformation that we are already, we have been doing. Just that I see the shift happening much more rapidly where all of this cloud and technology answers are all making that faster because by moving to cloud, what you are really forcing is that IT strategy decisions in terms of VCs and you are basically taking it away and it is becoming technology decision rather than enterprise IT decisions, right? Uh, so, so you are making those indirectly just that it is to be more conscious and more direct. And then now using that to deliver business outcome will become the new imperative rather than just doing enterprise IT strategy alone. So that's the first uh, set of challenges that I'm seeing or changes that I'm seeing where people have to be conscious about what they are owning. People need to have skills to be able to do both enterprise IT ownership as well as being able to deliver digital solutions using enterprise technology advances, right? So, so, so those are, you know, some of the trends that I'm seeing from a external facing point of view. Now let's come to the internal, right? If you look at our own, what one would call as a pyramid or a bulge or whatever you want to call, right? So software delivery used to have lots of program managers at the bottom. 
and few people who will basically oversee the output of it from a quality point of view and will also help convert requirements and that kind of stuff and then project managers who will basically see this end to end and then orchestrator who will see the customer stuff right so that's how we have all been building our it engagements right so in this context there are several new roles that is coming up in given that external change that is happening which have not even been foreseen in our traditional pyramids roles per se right who who would basically own it strategy who would be a technology strategist and it is very easy to say i a technical architect would do it but the way the digital uh, is evolving is that many of these technical decisions continues to be continuous actually because what a technology will starting off in the beginning of the program is not relevant or not satisfying you by the end of the program and we have not envisaged architecture as a function to be that of continuous in nature and there is just one example so mm-hmm. software developer needs to have some of not just the digital skills from a technology skill but architecture decision making or technical board as you would call it right architecture board a need mm-hmm. to have ability to not just put across his thoughts but even maybe even make those decisions so the roles per se is first of all going through a massive change technical skills obviously is going through a massive change but these two are you know fairly obvious but what is not obvious i would say in from an internal perspective is that there are very very few people who are giving thoughts to how to bring all of this together right so so for example you know automation we'll take that as an example lots of people talk about automation but the single biggest factor of success in automation is identification of use cases you got so many people who will churn out great bots but you have very very few people who can think of what to automate and how to automate right rather than how to automate mm-hmm. so that critical piece of upstream work which is thinking part of it is actually missing in the digital world same thing with uh, business driven programs and it is and take any example so so i see that our the approach that we are taking on the whole new enterprise and new digital journey is still traditional nature where we are looking at a technology view rather than outcome view or in business view and this is how i see ourselves putting various hats and reskilling ourselves and retooling which i'm sure we will do we have done it in the past is to be a very conscious relearning if you have to be successful in the new world yeah so traditionally we've had a lot of uh, engineering kind of discipline training you were saying process and all that and you also shared some stories where once you draw up a process everything looks fine on paper but when it comes to implementing it there are all these nuances cultural nuances in uh, this case first of all is the classification of software development as engineering right in your view so i am trying to question myself of late i am seeing more and more we moving away from that the reason for that is the traditional engineering aspect right which is design and implement is disappearing more and more and we see this whole thing as almost like a, i don't want to call it art and make it a big thing but if you look at painting right where painter would basically think through look at the subject and evolve it's not that the final picture is in their head right right up front mm. so so i see a digital world of what you want to achieve as a business benefit 
to be evolving continuously in a similar way as a painter brings about painting right and you know i'm just giving a very stark example just to mm-hmm. say why it is a anti engineering kind of a thing right but uh, but what what shouldn't be diminished is that the art of service delivery is still engineering led okay. but the art of software delivery right which is basically the end business objective delivery right system delivery is where i'm seeing more innovation led so so it is almost like a dual kind of a thing where the business side of it the outcome part of it needs to be more innovation led the internal engine part of it has to be a lot more engineering led you know how you do testing how do you ensure that all of the rest of the technology components all fit together so so i see double edge uh, kind of a stuff and which is why you know traditional training and all of it is not going to go away you just have to augment it with different roles different thought process and a different uh, business outcome that you have to measure yourself to for success yeah it's an interesting analogy of uh, an artist but then when we say that software development is more like a team sport when there are multiple people involved how do we ensure that this picture that emerges doesn't become more like a graffiti with each one probably writing something in one corner yeah uh, mainly in terms of the role of uh, managers or leaders you touched upon the need for the architect being involved continuously and or throughout and then evolving it so do you see a change in the expectations or roles of managers or leaders as well big time big time and what you really talked about is that right so basically the what and the how part so what i'm saying is the what part of the it delivery is what is going to be innovation led how you deliver it is what is going to be still engineering led and still going to be systematic so what we would call as really the managers are the people who have to bring both of this together right so because the how you are delivering needs to deliver the outcome which is the what part of it right so the dichotomy of how one is completely innovation led and therefore constantly changing and the other one which is in very systematic has to deliver a very dynamic thing is what we are going through everything that you are hearing on the streets today right that the digital skills are changing technologies are changing very difficult to deliver programs to customer expectation or all actually this particular dichotomy being exhibited in different words in my view right and that's where we as leaders and managers really need to do that translation and there is no one single silver bullet right and each program is different and each program we have to reconcile that so so meaning you got to still convert that vision of a business program into more quantified story boards and sprints and story points right at each sprint level right which either a product owner would do or as leader need to put in process to ensure that it happens and then how it gets transferred and digested by individuals in terms of technology components is really where the translation needs to happen so so both external facing process rigor that needs to be brought in and internal facing output which fits into that engine and delivers at a faster pace right because customers are expecting these output in sprint 0 sprint 1 you want quick show and tell for the business our traditional engineering mindset would just not allow that to happen so so we are coming up with all of this devops and all of it to kind of only fit into that model but really what we are trying to do is really bridge this dichotomy and say how can we make engineering driven process to be more nimble at the same time how can we force business driven innovation to be somewhat of smaller chunks 
which are digestible and will still be componentized and therefore be delivered in a predictable this thing. And if people can bridge this gap and set this expectation in a meaningful and predictable way, those are the future managers who are going to be successful. Those would be the digital managers who are, which the industry is going to crave for. And unfortunately, nobody has spent time to document this either at a skill level or even to, from an expectation point of view, everybody's running around looking for digital program managers and digital leaders, but articulating this particular skill set and creating a roadmap for people to develop the skill is what is required for even Indian IT industry to be successful in this new era. Yeah, that just preempted my next question. Because I was going to ask, how do you train? How as an individual can one learn at least at the speed of technology change, if not faster? With so much of uh, changes happening. Yeah, so and this is actually the challenge that uh, I've been grappling with while I've gave a framework, but how to do it in a if you do it at the pace at which the industry is changing, then you are likely to going to be a laggard, right? Both as an individual as well as as a company. But the successful ones are the ones who are going to preempt this from an industry uh, trend point of view and going to do this ahead of the industry change, right? And that is what me personally, my teams, I'm trying to stay ahead of the curve, right? And that's where the challenge is. Uh, The reason for that is the biggest part of this learning, unfortunately, comes from experience. So you got to go through that one round of a digital program or transformation program or mission program for you to literally, I wouldn't say fail, but see through the challenges of it. And then comes time of reflection because many people go through this and don't learn anything and then keep on doing it in the same pace, right? So you got to reflect upon this and some of the imperatives of this change and gone through almost like a a self-introspection or a learning phase. And then I see improved implementation of some of these learnings. So this cycle of do it once, literally fail or have a, a small setback and then introspect and then redo is the chain that I'm seeing to be most successful. And I've tried putting very, very smart people directly into the second phase of just introspect where I feed them, let's say, with the learning and try to accelerate into the third uh, cycle. Mm-hmm. It has not been successful. And obviously, you can't put somebody to be directly in the third cycle. So so this is my current loop of touch small, maybe literally fails, fail, fail uh, you know, small, so to say, and then uh, introspect, relearn, and then redo. I'm trying to see how we can short circuit. I haven't found a way yet, but at least I've got uh, somewhat of a predictable path to success. And rather than doing, we must uh, put everybody into a failure model, right? So where you can in a conscious way, how to learn from this process. Uh, But I think as an industry, we need to do this in a more accelerated fashion. We need to do it in a more predictable fashion and uh, we need to kind of do it in a fast, that's something which I'm grappling with, but at least I've got a way forward. Oh, good. Now that we are getting into more of this futuristic crystal ball gazing type of thing, in the business verticals that you have been associated with, what do you see as uh, the use cases? You also talked about uh, the need for identifying the use cases. Not just, everybody now talks about AI ML, or I want to add VR also to that. Where do you see those coming in and changing probably things in your business? Yeah, so so I will give you know a couple of examples on two very different industries. So one is basically a logistics industry, right? 
you know, VC data and obviously AI kind of driving both of them uh, in business in a very significant way. But example that I'm giving is uh, how do you use data to predict future of a company, right? And then similarly, how do you predict future of economy from the company, right? So basically, if you look at uh, 3PL, right? 3PL basically logistics providers who move goods from one place to other place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically what we have tried developing is that how do you basically movement of goods across the globe, right? As a predictor of economy, right? Okay. So based on the last several quarters and years of data, we see a cyclical trend where movement of goods actually as a can, can predict when the next economic uh, downturn is going to come because the production and manufacturing cycle and consumption cycle is all linked to it. But at the same time, interestingly, Today's moment of goods is also a predictor of my financial results of a particular company because the more I move today, the more money I make today and tomorrow, right? So, so mm-hmm. we have done this two-way linking of how our economy drives the goods and therefore the company and how the company drives the goods and then finally in turn can give a prediction of the economy, right? So this is the power of data and you know, one would never have thought of such a thing three years, four years back where one single company, obviously a company has to be representative for the industry, right? Uh, how can it predict an economy, right? So, so, and we find a very, very strong correlation based on algorithms that we have developed. It is just amazing correlation, which we have been able to do through AI. And same thing with pricing and in a retail sector, right? So you got lots of these large retailers, right? Generic machine or retailers who right in most of the Western countries who have lost what they represent right so if you go ask some of these retailers what is your fastest moving sku they would actually not know because yeah it's it's yeah i mean i'm a general merchandise provider i provide everything right so they tend to lose out what they have traditionally have stood for right or rather because there is nothing that they stand for literally uh, and no thanks to amazons and flipkarts and retailers it has actually forced them to go and introspect and find out what is their most profitable for good right so and then how much profit are they making on that versus what is the least profitable one right and how can how does it vary by store and we are just amazed that some of the fairly unknown brand that biggest selling SKUs happens to be a swimming shorts and then whole advertising actually one would never imagine of certain brands being associated you know you would never have seen a retailer advertising for a swimming costume right so but it's the most profitable one and biggest selling this. And so here it comes the new ad saying, if you want to buy a swimming costume, please come to us, right? So completely different view of data based on what you can slice and dice using AI. This is the kind of value that even IT, going back to my previous point, can really bring to business and really help rediscover businesses and what they stand for and hopefully stand up for the new world of disruption. Okay, so I have a flip side question to that. With uh, companies and probably industries depending so much on data and technology, recently we had this uh, ransomware attack on Maersk, where their entire global operation came to a standstill for almost a week, which can impact because nothing could be loaded, unloaded, planned, moved, and all that. Mm-hmm. So when we depend more and more on technology, uh, two aspects. I just wanted your views on that. One is about the security or the integrity. I'm not going into privacy. And the second is, yeah, partly you can say privacy. It is more on the ethics 
of using this kind of massive data that companies are building? Yeah, I I see it as a first of all one way street, right? Whether to use data or not. So data is going to be the new oil. It's going to be the new power. So there is no turning back from it, right? It's just that the usage of it is going to be more powerful, more driven. So so I see it only as a way forward. But that is does not distinguish that diminish the importance of security, right? It is only going to increase. So you will see more and more of investment on security, which is I would say in near term. But I think, you know, linking both security and privacy part of it, where I have seen very less common investment being done is really, I would say, what one would call as stacking of data. So there has been no industrialization or standardization of tagging of data, right? I'm not talking tagging from a point of nomenclature and data definitions and all of that does exist, but it does not, all of this is exists from the point of view of enterprise. It does not exist from a point of view of consumers, right? Okay. And that is left to discretion. So, so for example, if I am Badri, right? My age, whether that's private to me or not, should be tagged along with the data. Right. Okay. So, and in the across value chain, so, so for example, I go to, let's say Amazon, Amazon stores my data and tomorrow, let's say Amazon sells my data to somebody else. <clears throat> the privacy part of it is all each individual's responsibility. So what I'm looking at is basically uh, literally like a database world, you define character as a field and characteristics, uh, almost, you know, data definition and characteristics of it, both from a security point of view as well as a privacy point of view. Wonder <coughs> like that is what is really needed. And lack of that is what is, in my view, driving lots of this privacy concern. Because just like 2008 financial crisis, where the loans get consumed by multiple parties, and then the nature of the loan gets lost out, right? Over, you know, it gets transformed multiple times. Same thing has happened to data and more and more digital programs are going to convert data and massage it and kind of completely randomize it. But there is a need from an industry point of view to classify data in this context and ensure that it remains private or rather to the extent of privacy, so to say, needs to be inculcated into the data itself. Uh, and same thing goes for security as well. Uh, and it doesn't again move the needs for other security measures. This also need to be put in. But a most fundamental level, it needs to be incorporated at the bottommost level. On top, you've got to have security measures which avoid, you know, MERS kind of uh, incidents from happening and taking the world to ransom. Yeah, very nicely put. There are a lot more questions that come to my mind, but in the interest of time, I still want to ask you one question that I ask pretty much every guest. What is your advice or warning to people considering a career in IT? Okay. So back in these, right? So people said T career is way to go. If you want to be living abroad, then uh, people start saying, if it is, uh, you want a future in IT, you want to go into this particular tech technology, Java, Java is the place, became mainframe before Y2K time. And then it all became .NET, then period of time, AD projects, development projects, then it's all digital. So see, it's been evolving. It looks like it's evolving. But I would actually, you know, really put it in a much more simplistic fashion. In a lot of sense, IT industry hasn't changed. It's just that we are just moving, chasing one target to the other target. It has also remained as evolved, but it has largely remained somewhat similar, right? So uh, I would put a very, very non-IT characteristic to this whole thing, right? If you want to be successful, you've got to be first be passionate. If you're passionate and it 
holds good for any industry but more so in it industry because it is going it is going to be a disruptor whether you are in a retail industry or you are in a telecom industry or you are in a finance industry it industry is it is going to be central to all of this so therefore you are kind of literally is going to be, you are going to be in the center of economy and you are going to be center of disruption to carry out such a disruptive work you got to drive lots of passion and you got to be going through lots of churn in terms of technology changes and it's not a easy job because one industry doing one type of role is much more predictable than working in an industry which cuts across all industries and is also evolving and changing continuously so first attribute i would say is really the passion second advice i would kill or attribute i would associate to the uh, this industry is really unlearning and relearning right lots of folks and if i look back at my own career right there have been so many setbacks and so many learnings from that many of us go into a shell and not don't want to come out of it right so we kind of go in a unidirectional way the future leaders in it will be those who will really ready to unlearn what they have done keep a completely open mind and are ready to learn the new skills right and ready to see a new perspective right so 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 that i would say would be the second most with this all other technical skills and everything else comes along with this if you are good you know in executing these two strategies i am sure you will be successful with that reassuring message thanks badri for coming on the show and sharing your experience and perspectives i'm sure there are more topics to talk about i will take a rain check for a series that we are planning to do probably sometime later in the year about it couples sure sure Thanks everyone for listening in and all the best in your career. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.